You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is good to see you this morning. We are in Exodus chapter 20. And so if you want to grab a Bible and turn to Exodus 20, that would really help. If you had a Bible out and open on your lap, I just want to encourage you to make sure that you bring a Bible. You having a good Bible that you read and that you can mark up and that you can... Uh, you know, turn to in moments like this is really important for you. So make sure that you have a good Bible if you need one. Uh, feel free to take one of those underneath every three or four seats. You should be able to find one, and that would be our gift to you if you don't have a good Bible. And while you're turning to Exodus chapter 20, uh, let me uh, go back and thank you for filling out the survey that we uh, posted in January, kind of through February. Um, that has been so helpful for us, and it has been so encouraging to read those surveys and just to kind of get a glimpse of all the things that God is doing in our church family. And it is remarkable. God is doing so many wonderful things in this group of people that, uh, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. And so it's given us kind of a glimpse of that, and we're so thankful for that. And I also want to take a second to thank those who express concerns and things they would like for us to pray over. We are very grateful for that. I'm so glad that you feel a freedom to do that. That's really a value for us, and we're glad that that sort of an atmosphere is created. And in light of that, I want to remind you of two things especially for those who have expressed some sort of like, man, I would love for you to think or pray about this uh, to our pastors. Uh, let me remind you of one thing and then encourage you with one thing. First is the reminder, and let me just remind you that, that like at the end of the day, that survey is not us saying we can do everything that everyone in our church family would like. It's not that. That would be leadership suicide if we did that. It would go so poorly around here if that was our approach to how we were trying to lead. But what we are committing to is reading those things, praying over all of those surveys, anything that is expressed on there, and asking God for clarity on what he would want for us. I just want to remind you that, that our posture coming into it is not that we are bound by it, but that we are prayerfully asking God to give us clarity on any of the concerns that were expressed. And then to encourage you, and this is really for, for all of us in here, regardless of where you find yourself in a church home someday, um, this is a really important idea that I want to make sure is clear among our church family here. If you ever have a sense in you of, oh, I don't like that, or I want them to think about this, or I want to be able to like verbalize this concern, or whatever that is, I want to make sure that in your mind, you don't think in, in the moment of feeling that, um, I can't talk about that with anyone. Like we want you and we want to create a culture here that invites you to come and talk to us about those things. That the last thing we would want is for you to sit on something like that and, and for all the ugliness to kind of stir up in you around that. I mean, we would totally invite and we would love good conversations on those things. It doesn't mean that we're going to do what your concern is or, or you know, snap this way because you say something. But it does mean that we're going to be humble. We're going to listen. We'll prayerfully consider that. So I just want to make sure in your mind you link. When I get little things like that, kind of in my heart of like, man, I, I need to talk about that, that you don't think I can't, but you think I can. That we want to be super approachable in those sort of moments for you. So I want you to know that and feel that going forward, regardless of, you know, almost every survey is super encouraging. But you're going to probably have moments in any church family you're ever a part of where, oh, I don't like that. And we want our environment here, the atmosphere here, the culture here to be one that we will humbly listen and, and can have good dialogue about those things. Fair enough? Okay. Um, Exodus chapter 20. Before we can deal with the third commandment, we have to consider and spend some time thinking about God's name. 
And the reason we have to do some thinking about God's name is because God does not think about names the way that you and I oftentimes think about names. In our culture, names are primarily used as labels. Okay, this is what we, they're like name tags. They're just labels that people go by. So that if I, you know, went to sleep last night as Rodney and woke up as Jeff this morning, that would be really weird to wake up as Jeff. But nothing about the core part of me changes. The only thing that changes is the label that people call me. Okay, now this is how most of us think about names. But that is not the way God thinks about his name. So, so God's view of names and our view of names are vastly different. And until we kind of get a working understanding of how God views his name, we'll never kind of make sense of the third commandment and we'll never have a concern about breaking the third commandment. So we've got to get a growing sense about how does God think about his name? Now here is the, the core thing I would want you to be kind of, you know, marinating yourself in as we think about the name of God. That God's name has everything to do with God's being. God's name and God's being. These things are intermingled and interwoven. For us, they're separate. For us, a name's a label. For, for God, his name is not a label. It's an identity. It's right at the being of God, at the character of God, at the nature of God. Now, let me give you a couple of passages that I think will walk us into some of this. The first is in Exodus chapter 3. So if you want to flip back to Exodus 3. It'll be on the screen for you if you need it there too. So let me just give the context. The people of Israel are in Egypt. They are enslaved. They are under the hard hand of oppressors in Egypt. The people of Egypt are treating them very harshly. And they cry out to God, and God is ready to deliver the people of Israel. So uh, God uh, has this little burning bush moment with Moses, and the bush just keeps on burning. And God speaks out of this burning bush to Moses. And God lets Moses know that Moses is going to be God's man to go back to Egypt. And God gives uh, Moses this direction. You need to go to Egypt and you need to tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the most powerful person inside of the most powerful kingdom on the planet at the time. You need to go to him and you need to tell him to let my people go. Pharaoh, I know it's going to be economic ruin for your country, but you need to let the people of God go. You go tell Pharaoh that. Now Moses objects, and here's Moses' objection. Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses asked. God responds to Moses, I am who I am. And God went on to say, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if, if I'm Moses in that moment, I'm thinking this. What in the world is I am? I don't know what you're talking about. This I am, like, I'm going to tell them that I am sent me to do... That just is, what, what is this? So we're going to have to do some work in making sense. When God says, my name is I am, and you tell him I am has sent you, we're going to have to do some work to make sense of that. So I am, God is revealing his name in this moment, and he reveals it as a verb, to, to be, I, I am. In Hebrew, it's four letters. It's Y-H-W-H. We have to insert vowels into those four letters to make it pronounceable, Yahweh. Yahweh is how God divinely reveals his name. 
God is saying, this is, this is my name. This is how you can refer to me. My name is I am. It's Yahweh. Now, in saying his name is Yahweh, he is not just giving a convenient label for us to address him by. That's not what God's doing in this moment. In revealing his name as Yahweh, he is giving us the sum total of his being and character and attributes. See, in, embedded into this name Yahweh, God is saying, embedded into that, I am, this is my name. Embedded into that name is the reality that God is self-existent. That God is eternal, that he has always been, he is, and he will always be. That there's never been a moment, nor ever will be a moment, where God ceases to exist. Embedded into that name is that reality. Embedded into the name Yahweh, or I am, God is saying, I am self-sustaining. That everything I need to be eternally happy, I have within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't need anything or anyone else to be eternally happy. I am self-existent. Have everything I need. Don't need you. Don't need anyone else to, to have that. Embedded into the name Yahweh is God's sovereignty. But by saying I am, he is saying I can do whatever I want because I am. Because this is my name. Because I'm Yahweh. I am sovereign. I, I do whatever I please. See, embedded into the name of God is the being of God. You can't separate the two. It's not a label for God. It, when we refer to the name of God, we are referring to the being of God, to the person of God, to the attributes and character of God. Now, here's another place to see something similar. Skip forward to Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, God is going to make a similar point, that my being and my name are tethered together. You cannot separate these two things. So in Exodus 33, um, this is right after the moment we uh, talked about last week where the whole golden calf, false worship moment happens for the people of Israel. You get to Exodus 33, verse 18. It'll be on the screen for you for easy access to. Um, in verse 18, Moses says this. He's referring to God, looking at God. He says, please show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. Now, anytime you see the Lord in all caps, that is God's divine name. That's, that's the word Yahweh being expressed there. So I will uh, make my name, you know, pass before you, proclaim my name to you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. Now Moses wedges himself in the cleft of the rock. Then you come down to Exodus 34, verse 5, and here's what we read. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh. And then God says this, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so what, what's happening here? So God comes and he says, okay, my, my, my presence is gonna pass before you. And, and as it's happening, the Lord proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, this is my divine name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And God immediately gives the substance to that name, his being. 
He, he proclaims his name and then shows what is in that name. Here's what's in that name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This God is so full of grace that forgiveness will break out over the head of every rebel that, re, that receives him. But that God is also just and holy. For everyone that rejects this gracious God, they will be swallowed up in his justice and wrath. See, as soon as he says, here's my name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, he instantly shows what is in that name, the substance, the being that's, that's embedded into it. You cannot separate the, the name of God from the being of God. God's name is not a label. It is the sum total of his being. Now, think about Proverbs 18.10 in light of this. I think this is a helpful place to show kind of this reality. Proverbs 18.10 goes like this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. We would never use the, the, the word name like that. You, you would never hear someone in our culture say, the name of Rodney is a strong tower. You'd never, that's not the way we use names because names are a label. But for God, his name and his being are used interchangeably. So, so you could say, this is what Proverbs 18 is saying. It's not just the name of the Lord, it's the being of the Lord, the substance of the Lord, his character, his nature, his sovereignty. It, it's the name, his being is a strong tower. You can run into that being God, that name God, you can run into God. And here's what you can know if you run into that God, you'll forever be safe. You'll be eternally safe. Who's going to harm you if you're in the hands of a sovereign God? Who's going to harm you if, if, if you're in the hands of a God who is all-powerful? Who's going to harm you if you're in the name of that God, in that fortress, in that refuge, in that strong tower? Do you see how the name of God and the being of God are used like that? They're, they're tethered together. Now watch Moses in Exodus 34, verse 8. Look at his response to the revelation of God's name. So God has revealed himself. This is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He, he gives his attributes. And then verse 8 happens. This is what happens to Moses when God's name is seen and revealed. Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now isn't that something? The name of God is full of so much weight that we can't stand in its presence. The name of God, the being of God, it's so big and massive and significant and weighty that it presses us to the ground. The name of God floors us, lays us low. The only thing Moses needed to do when he saw the name of God revealed was to get as low as he could go. And then look at this. It says, he not only bowed his head, but he worshiped. And this is not God looking at Moses saying, okay, I've shown you myself, now bow and worship. Do it now. It's not what happens. God shows himself and it's the only thing Moses can do. See, this is the name of God, the significance of it, the weight of it, the grandeur of it. When God shows himself to a human being, Moses does what every human being will do. We bow and we worship. We open up our hands and say, God, I am all yours I am all yours. See, this is the, the reflexive response of the human heart when we encounter greatness, namely the greatness of God. When we encounter his name, this is what happens to all of us. Now, it's that understanding of God's name and God's being 
that we have to reorient our mind around before we are ready to read and consider and try to apply the third commandment. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord. This name that when it is revealed to Moses, it floors him and his heart begins to adore and worship God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Two points. I want to try to clarify what the command is teaching, and then we're going to work at applying it to our lives. So clarifying it and applying it. So here's the first part. The command clarified. What is God saying in this passage when he says, you should not take my name in vain? What is he getting at here? I think the key word in verse 7 is the word vain. You see it twice. I would underline it. If you've got your Bible there handy, I would underline it in the first half of the verse and in the second half of the verse. It's the last word in the first half, the last word in the second half. And it is the key phrase, the key word. To understand both on the negative side what this commandment is prohibiting and the positive side what it is getting at, we've got to un unpack this word vain. What, what is he saying when he is saying, do not take my name in vain? We'll start with the negative side because that's how the command is, is said. To take the Lord's name in vain means that we suck the significance out of God's name. That we trivialize the name of God. That we take a name that is ultimately weighty and massive and significant and make it trivial and insignificant and light. Through both our lips and our lives, it's we're trivializing the name of God. Rather than, than allowing God's name to floor us and to elicit worship in our heart, we just make it seem small and ordinary and common. Okay, this is what the, the third commandment is prohibiting. Now, I said this last week in terms of the second commandment, that I think if we slid a piece of paper in front of, of our church family and had all the Ten Commandments listed, and I, if we you know, did the whole, like, put in a paragraph form what this commandment is teaching, I think the second commandment would be the one that like most of us would be like, I've got no idea, don't know. But I, I think the problem with the third commandment is I think we would all assume we know it. Like I think we would assume that our surface level understanding of the third commandment is nailing what God's intent in the third commandment is. So in other words, I think most of us would look at the third commandment and say, well, as long as I don't use God's name in a moment of anger, we're good. I've kept the third commandment. Okay, so let's just all get on the same page here. If this is number three on God's top 10 list of laws, of things that we need to consider, like the don't do the do's. If this is number three on the list, it probably goes a little bit deeper than that. Wouldn't you agree? It's probably deeper and wider than just a, a, a language issue in a moment. And it is much deeper and wider than that. To walk us into that, let me let the Westminster Catechism, question 103, or 113, uh, address this. So, so here's questions 113 of the Westminster Catechism. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? Okay, now we're going to see that it's much wider than just a moment of anger using God's name. Here's what it says. And this is paraphrased to make it as readable as I can here. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the abuse of God's name in any ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious way. So that would kind of be the way we would normally think about this command being broken. But it's going to go deeper and wider than that. Perjury. We're on a stand. We have sworn we're going to tell the truth under God's name, and we lie. All sinful cursings, oaths, and vows. 
a lot of, of, of promises we make we shouldn't make. Not keeping our oaths and vows. So we make a promise or we say we're going to do something and we don't do it. It's interesting. My favorite commentator on the Ten Commandments is J.I. Packer. And uh, he spends the majority of his time, like the theme of his application is, be a person that, that follows through on your word. That's how you keep the third commandment. That's the primary way he applies this thing. Is when you say you're going to do something, you better do it if you want to keep the third commandment. He makes the comment in there. He says that, that a man following after Jesus and seeking to obey the third commandment will make promises carefully, and they will be very careful to fulfill the promises that they have made. So it's keeping your promises, keeping your word being good. It goes on, murmuring and quarreling at or misapplying of God's decrees and providences. In other words, we look at God, we shake our fists, and we, as we're looking at God saying, God, how dare you allow these circumstances in my life? How dare you do that? Breaking the third commandment. It goes on, misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word. So here's the Bible, and God says this in the Bible, but we're looking at the Bible and looking at other people saying, no, God doesn't say that. God says this. That's breaking the third commandment. Maintaining false doctrines, maligning, scorning, or opposing of God's truth, his grace, and his ways. We also break the third commandment by making a profession of religion and hypocrisy. In other words, we say that we're a Christian, but we're really not a Christian. This is Matthew 7. Like they say, Lord, Lord, did we do all these great things in your name? And God, no, I never knew you. That's breaking the third commandment. Or by bringing shame to God's name by an unwise, unfruitful, and offensive life. Okay, so it's important to see here that it's much bigger than in a moment of anger, I just use God's name. It is bigger than that. We can break the third commandment by both our lips and our lives. We can make God's name seem trivial and insignificant and light and not very weighty by both lips and lives. We can do it with all of our lives. It doesn't just touch this one moment of anger. It touches everything in our lives. You can profane God's name by your lips and you can profane God's name by how you deal with money and possessions. So you can do it in all those ways. You can do it by false doctrine and you can do it through disobedience. We can make God seem trivial and light and common and insignificant in a lot of different ways, both life and lips. Now, what is the positive side of this commandment? What is it saying to do? If, if that's the negative, don't do side, what's the positive like? Now get your life going in this direction. Here, here's what I want you to proactively be about and doing. I think Matthew 6, 9 is the place to, to define that. I think it shows us what is the positive side of the third command. Matthew 6, 9, do you remember how, how Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer? When he's teaching us how to pray, here's how he teaches us. You say something like this, he says, Our Father in heaven, you remember the next phrase? Hallowed be your name. That is the positive side of the third commandment. It's, it's taking God's name that is ultimately weighty and significant. And it's both praying for and pursuing the hallowing of it, the honoring of it, the revering of it, the weightiness of it. It's actually pursuing that. It's living in such a way. It's speaking in such a way that's giving credence to, that's helping infuse God's name with the weight that it deserves. It's hallowing God's name. Through life and through lips, it's pursuing the reverence to God's name, the honor to God's name, the esteem to God's name. It's actively pursuing those things. Now, let's tie all of this together in the first, second, and third commandment. First commandment, the proactive positive side is 
Worship the right God. No false gods, just the right God. Second commandment, worship the right God in the right way. Now the third commandment is, is God is clarifying that part of how we worship God, a big part of how we worship and relate to God is how our lives and our lips give testimony to the name of God. This is a massive, it has everything to do with our worship of God, how we speak of God and how we live for God. Whether we're trivializing God with our life and lips or whether we're esteeming and putting honor into the name of God with our life and our lips. Now look at the last phrase in verse seven, just briefly here. This is the warning of verse seven. The warning goes like this. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now that's serious language, isn't it? That is serious language. And, and in this moment, God is saying a little and implying a lot. We do this with our language all the time. So picture the moment where a dad is looking at his son and the dad says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Now what's happening in that moment? The dad is saying a little, but he means a whole heck of a lot, doesn't he? He is saying a lot there. The dad in that moment is not saying, hey, I've just got a little casual advice I'd love for you to take. That is not what the dad's saying. When he is using that language, it's a little language implying a lot. He is implying, if you do that, we've got a massive problem. And this is what God's implying. If you break this commandment, we have got massive problems going on. This is serious business to God. It's so serious that in Leviticus uh, chapter 24, a guy profanes the name of God, takes the Lord's name in vain. Three verses later, the guy gets killed. It's so serious that Job is worried that his kids have profaned the name of God, taken the Lord's name in vain. So he offers sacrifices on behalf of his kids just in case they have. I mean, God is saying, this is serious. This is not to be trifled with. I am serious about this command. And listen, we would do well to consider how our lives are interacting with this command. Because chances are it's interacting in a lot of ways that we would not see on the surface. We're breaking this command in a lot of ways that we're unaware of. So we would do well to consider this, to think about this, to linger over this for a few minutes. So that's the command clarified. Now the command applied. What does it look like for this to, to seep into our lives and to, to influence our lives? What does it look like to live in to this command? Now, this is a broad command that's got broad application. We could literally do multiple sermons on the application of this one commandment. So there is a lot that I'm going to have to forsake. There's a lot I'm not going to say so I can apply it to a few areas. So I'm going to deal with three areas. And I just want to invite you. I think it's worth you doing the work and figuring out and thinking about the other areas. So I'm going to apply it to three areas. Here's the first one. False prophecies. This is the first part. False prophecies. What is a false prophecy? Essentially, it is using God's name to advance our own agenda. So it's us having an agenda that's not God's agenda and us using and invoking God's name to lend credibility for the advancement of our agenda. Okay, this is, this is false prophecy. Now, let me just show you one way this plays out. Um, and by the way, one Old Testament scholar, this is really interesting. One Old Testament scholar said that uh, he estimates there's over 200 moments where someone in the Old Testament invokes the name of God. So they're saying that what I am saying, God has said. So it's a thus saith the Lord moment. It's in God's name I'm saying this, but it's equating 
that what I am telling you, God is telling you. It's equating those two things together. He estimates that there's over 200 times in the Old Testament where that happens, that language is used when God has nothing to do with it. False prophecy. It is all throughout the Bible and it's all throughout our lives. Okay, let me just give you one illustration from the Bible. This is Jeremiah 23. This will be on the screen for you for easy reference. Jeremiah 23, verses 16 and 17. Here's one instance of the couple of hundred in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is Ezekiel clarifying, or Jeremiah clarifying this. He says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Now, why in the world would Jeremiah say that? Don't listen to the prophets who are speaking on behalf of God to you. Here's why. They're filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. You're going to be just fine. That's the word of the Lord. And Jeremiah is saying, no, don't listen to them. These are people who have their own agenda for your life, not God's agenda. And they are speaking as if God is speaking through them to you. They're saying that this is the word of God when it's not the word of God. When they're not speaking on God's behalf, they're lying. They are invoking God's name to advance their agenda in your life. Now, this is our culture to a T. Listen to Stephen Carter. He's a, a Yale law professor. Listen to how he describes it in his book that he wrote over the third commandment. He says it this way. He said, in truth, there is probably no country in the Western world where people use God's name quite as much or quite as publicly or for quite as many purposes as we Americans do. That's in spite of the third commandment. He goes on. Few candidates for office are able to end their speeches without asking God to bless the great work we're undertaking. Everybody is sure that the other side is insincere and that God's on their side. Now, Michael Horton, he is a professor at Westminster Seminary. He picks up this idea and he says this. In the past 20 years, God's been used to justify American nationalism, militarism. God's name has been used to, to oppose uh, or for the opposition to child care for working mothers. And even such debatable issues as the retention of the Panama Canal. He goes on to say, he has been used, God's name has been used as a mascot for a million different causes. And that's true. To, to invoke like God's name into our agenda, to give it credibility, to give it more substance. Our culture does that all the time. Our culture is full of that sort of a thing. It's not God's agenda, but we're going to act like it's God's agenda. We're going to invoke God's name so that people will really get behind it and take it seriously. That's sort of a way of thinking. And God is saying, that is breaking the third commandment. That is belittling my name. That is, that is taking my name in vain when you do that. Now, let me just apply it to a couple of, of areas. I think get a, a little bit up close and personal for many of us in the room. I think that that same way of operating... Here is my agenda. Not sure if it's God's or not, but here's mine. So let's pull down the name of God and attach it to my agenda so that it will give credibility and a little more support to it. 
I think that is all in church culture in America. And I think it most often gets couched in this sort of language. God told me to do that, or God told me to say that, or God told me fill in the blank. God told me. Now, before we address those words, let's just all get a sense of this. If you ever say, God said this, God told me this, you better be really sure God did it. I mean, you better be really sure that that happened. And, and here's, here's the problem. Most Christians, very few are going to be on the other end of this. Most Christians all agree that they have never heard the audible voice of God. Most all agree with that. Now, to balance that, we all agree, Christians, that when you become a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus, one of the things that happens is the Spirit of God now comes and lives within you. You now have the Spirit of God in you, and the Spirit leads us. But let's make this like real clear, the distinction between these two things. Thus saith the Lord is different than, I feel an internal sense of leading by the Spirit. Thus saith the Lord means God said it, period. I feel an internal sense of leading is saying this. God might have said it, but I've got a lot of layers between me and God that operate in my flesh, and I could be distorting something. Are we seeing the difference in those two? And, and making a difference between those two things, we would be really wise to do that in the way we relate to ourselves and the way we relate to other people. We'd be really wise to create the difference there. Now, let's be clear here. There are moments where it is perfectly appropriate for a Christian to say, God said this. God is saying this. There is, there is moments where it's perfectly appropriate. If God has said that in his word and it's clear, it is perfectly appropriate to say, God has said it. Because God did say it. It is in the Bible that God has given to us as his revealed will. And when God clearly says it in the Bible, we can all stand really confidently and say with God, God has said it. So in a morning like this, I could say, um, if, if you are in this room and you are a Christian and you're dating a non-Christian, God has said, break up with them. You can say that. God is, because God has said that. It's, it's very clear in the scriptures that that's where God lands on that issue. But here's what so often happens for a lot of us. We take a wisdom issue and we invoke God's name into our cause because this is what we really wanna do. So we'll say things like, God told me to buy that house, really? Is that like in the book of like your name, one, like where is that, right? Or we'll say things like, God told me to marry that person, really? Last time I checked, your wife's name probably wasn't in the Bible. I don't know if, if I would say God told me that. I think it's perfectly fine to say I feel this internal sense of leading in that direction. But I, I think we are, we are on the thin ice when we start saying God said, virtually claiming we have heard an audible voice of God that is on par with Scripture when God has already said what he wants to say in his word. I think we're on very thin ice and we are on the thin ice that we're oftentimes gonna fall through and fall right into breaking the, the third commandment. Now, one other just quick application of this. When it comes to the God told me thing, not only is it misapplied so often in wisdom issue moments, but it is so often used to justify our own sinful wants. I have heard God's name invoked 
to justify and lend credibility to a lot of acts of sin. I have prayed about it and God said it was okay for us to live together before we got married. Really? That's weird because God said something other than that in the Bible. I've prayed about it and I think God is okay with me leaving my marriage when I don't have biblical grounds. Really? Because God said something else in his Bible, right? And so we just have to be very careful about using God told me, God said to me in wisdom issues and to justify our own little agendas. Now, let me give you one more application of this. I think goes down a lot in church culture and this takes it one step further. It's not just that God said, it's God told me to tell you what he said. Now, I'm just gonna tell you, I cringe every time I hear that. If, if that. if that preface starts a conversation, there is a part of my mind that's gonna instantly shut off because I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't think that's the most helpful way to lead into that conversation. I think we would all do God's name much more justice as we just said this. I woke up this morning thinking about you and felt like I should tell you this. I think we'd be much better off to do that. Now, why is it that we want to invoke God's name into these moments? The reason is because we want our moment to have more credibility. We want our words to have more credibility. We want our agenda to have more you know, credibility and support. That's why we're doing it. Now, here's the catch of that. The more we're working for our own credibility, the more we are going to diminish over time God's credibility. See, when, when you say, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't happen, and just a side note, when somebody did that in the Old Testament, those jokers got killed for that. But when we do that, when we say, God said this, and, and then we're starting to live life, and that doesn't happen, who do you think that discredits? Not just you, but the God you just claim said it. That's who it discredits. So the more we're trying to credit our cause when it's not necessarily God's cause, the more we're going to end up impugning the name of God over time. So we have to be very careful about false prophecies, about falling into the camp that says, I'm going to get God on board with my agenda. I'm going to invoke God's name to make sure people really know this is serious business, right? I mean, when God says it clearly, let's do it. But if it's a wisdom issue, if it's your issue, if it's your agenda, We need to be very careful about false prophecy. Here's the second way to apply it. And this one is more of a, even a more broad application. We break the third commandment through false lives. We need to be aware of false lives. Let me give you an example of this in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now, to catch you up in Ezekiel 36, the people of God have disobeyed God. God has judged the people of Israel. He's, he's disciplining them by sending them, deporting them out of the, the land he has given them. And he's deported them to another land. This is the moment that Ezekiel 36 picks us up in. And in verse 16, I think this should be on the screen for you as well. Uh, Ezekiel says this, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 17, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and their deeds. Another way, in other words, that they did that by their lives. Their lives had a defiling effect. Their way, and listen to this in the last part of verse 17 here. Their ways or their lives before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. What an illustration. I mean, God is using vivid language to say, I don't like lives that look like that. He goes on. 
So I poured out my wrath, my discipline upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. They, they took my name in vain. In, in that, people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Okay, now let me give you the logic of the passage. Here, here's the logic of it. God's looking at them and he's clarifying this. People of Israel, you are my treasured possession. You were to be the people of all the people of the earth that were to be mine. They were to be a light to the nations. But rather than being a light to the nations, you have lived, you have lived false lives. You have lived in disobedience to me. And now I've had to come and discipline your disobedience. And my discipline has looked like an invading foreign army conquering you and leading you out of the land that I have given you. You've now been deported. You've now been cast out of this land. And because of your false lives leading to my discipline, leading to you now being in another land, here's what's happening. People are looking at you, my people, and they're making this leap. It's not just that these people are living false lives. It's that they must have a false God. If they're not in their land, it must mean their God is not that good. Their God is not that powerful. They must have a false God. Are you seeing that? Ezekiel is clarifying for us that our lives can have a discrediting effect on the name of God. That we can take God's name in vain, not just with our lips, but through our lives that are, are bringing the esteem of God down, making God look trivial and insignificant. That we can do that with our lives. And the Bible uses language to describe that and to connect those dots throughout it. The New Testament gives several great examples of this. In Romans 2.24, Paul says it like this. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's looking at the Jewish people and he's saying, man, God's name is impugned and maligned because of your works, because of the way that you're living. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says it like this. Let your light shine so uh, that they may see your good, deed, or see your good wor words and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's take the other side of that. The other side of that is you can also live in such a way where people do not see your good deeds and you mask the glory of God in heaven. It is equally possible to live on that side of it. Paul says it this way in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There is a way that we can profess to know God, but at the same time take God's name in vain by our own disobedience, by our own lives and deeds. In Acts 11, this is the first time in church history, this was in Antioch, that, that people who were following Jesus were called Christians. Now, I understand in our culture, everyone thinks they're a Christian. And so some people, because everyone in our culture thinks they're a Christian, wants to take that word and kind of leave it alone and let's use a new word to describe what it means to follow Jesus. And I get that in light of just the cultural dynamics, but I think we would do best to redeem that word, not reject it. Because what does a Christian mean? A Christian is saying, I am a little Christ. I've got a big brother, his name is Jesus Christ. 
Now, we've got a bunch of little brothers and sisters down here, and we are little Jesuses. We are little Christ. In our lives, we are showing that we follow our big brother Jesus. So we're being conformed to our big brother Jesus. We're starting to look more like our big brother Jesus. We're starting to think more like our big brother Jesus. Our lives more and more and more are taking on the nature of our big brother Jesus. That's what we're saying when we call ourselves a Christian. That God has saved us and he's changing us and transforming us into the image of our big brother. We're a little him. We're a little Christ. That's what we're saying in that moment. See, the Bible is trying to show us that in the way that we live, we can impugn and dishonor and discredit the name of God. That that is possible to do. Now, can we just linger on this for a second and just think about your own life for just a moment here? Blowing up in a moment of anger and frustration. In that moment, we are impugning the name of God. We are taking a name that is infused with such weight and glory and power, and we're making it seem common and trivial. Man, I just had a, a moment this last week where uh, one of the boys in our home, Quincy, man, I just responded in anger to him and frustration. And uh, man, I just got down in front of him. We sat down, and I looked at him and said, man, I am sorry for that. That that is not the picture of our God that I want you to see lived out in me. And we can impugn the name of God in our marriages. When we just choose to live disobediently, when, when we allow cracks to, to form in our marriage and not to address them, when we bail in our marriage, when God does not give us freedom to bail in our marriage, we're impugning the name of God. Pornography impugns the name of God. Sexual immorality impugns the name of God. The way we deal with money and possessions, if we are bowing at the altar of money and possessions as if they will give us the life that only God can give us, we are impugning the name of God. Now, I just want to give you a moment here just to honestly ask, ask yourself, I man, is there any, like, this is what it looks like to glorify God with your life. It looks like you, you standing before God open-handed saying, God, there is not going to be any part of me that is walled off from you. There's not going to be any part of me that is barricaded from you. You get it all, God. You get every bit of me. I surrender every part of my life. You've got it. Now, what do you want to do with it? You tell me and I'm in. My yes is there. You just show me what the yes is going to do. That's how we glorify God with our lives. That's how we honor God with our lives. So just ask yourself the question, is there any area of your life right now where you are barricaded in? Where you're looking at God and just saying, God, I'm just not going to deal with that. I don't care what you say. I just, I'm not going to deal with that. This is the stuff you can have. This is the stuff that you cannot have. Is there any area that you have walled off from God? If so, that is breaking the third commandment. And God is inviting us now. He's saying, I have set you free. Now, this is what it looks like to live free. Don't barricade your life. Don't wall yourself out. A free life looks like you standing like this in front of me, allowing me to direct your life. That's what it looks like. God's inviting us into that sort of a life. And then lastly, we'll be done here. False lips. So false prophecies, false lives, and then false lips. And this is the one that we'd probably expect to be talked about in the third commandment. This is those moments where through our lips, through our words, we are emptying the, the, the full name of God of its value and honor. Where we trivialize God with our words. 
And listen, that, that, I mean, I don't want to give all the examples. I mean, that could be in an anger, uh, you know, in a moment of anger and frustration, you associating God, talking about God in that moment in a disrespectful way. It could very well be that. And listen, I think a lot of us need to actually consider that. I, I was hanging with a brother just here recently, and uh, I could tell that he just hadn't thought about that. He is using God's name in moments that he just shouldn't be using his name. They're just emptying it of value and, and respect and honor and reverence. So I, I really do think a lot of us need to think about how we use God, especially in moments of frustration. But it could just be how we sprinkle God in our conversations in trivial ways. That, that we say it in, in so many times and so lightly that if you were a person listening to you talk about God, you would assume that name doesn't mean very much. We need to be careful about that. Now, I'm, I'm less concerned with the physical act of us trivializing God with our lips, and I'm more concerned about our heart in doing that. So when the Bible talks about our words, it, it's going to be clear that we don't just grab our words out of thin air. It's not just, we don't just use words at random. The Bible is overtly clear that our words flow from our heart. Our words flow out of our heart. This is where they come from. So just think about in a moment where you say something ridiculous to another person and you look at them and say, I am sorry, I didn't mean to say that. That is a theologically incorrect statement. Here's a theologically correct statement. I am so sorry, I'm embarrassed even to admit this, but I actually meant to say that and I shouldn't have. That's theologically correct. Our, the Bible is clear that our words are always connected to our hearts. So now think about what is happening if God can roll off of our lips in vain sort of ways, ways that have emptied God of his value and worth and significance. If our, if our lips can do that, what is it saying? It is saying that that has already happened in our hearts. See, for God to roll off of our tongue in a vain way, it means that our hearts are already treating God in a vain way. See, when we can do that with our, with our lips on the surface up here, it is showing us that deep down in our soul, we have a serious problem with God. We have trivialized God. God has become light to us. God has become insignificant to us. The God who lays Moses flat in Exodus 34 has just become common and trivial. It's showing us that. And can we just linger there for a moment? If that's us this morning... There is no more serious issue in our life than seeing God rightly, than seeing God's name, his being, as infused with the grandeur and the bigness and the beauty that it actually has. There's nothing more important in your life and in my life than seeing that. And our lips are so often reflective of we are not seeing God like that. So we need to be aware of our lips. We need to be careful with our lips. And here's the positive side of that. Our lips can actually be used to glorify God, to honor God, to hallow God. We can actually talk about ways when our hearts are seeing God rightly in ways that esteems God. Ways that gives all the weight to the name of God that his name deserves. Okay, let's end with this. Edmund Clowney uh, wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. He says this about the third commandment. He says, the Son of God opens the door of heaven to make the third commandment new to us. And aren't we grateful for that? That Jesus transforms the third commandment. Now think about the third commandment. It's saying, here is the name of God. That name is weighty. That name is to be esteemed. That name is to be reverent. 
You, you're to treat God's name as big and as powerful. And this is the God who, who spoke and things got created. This is that God, Yahweh God, I am. That God who embedded into his name is the fact that he's self-existent, that he's sovereign, self-sustaining. It's that God that we're talking about here. And the crazy thing about Jesus is through his life, where he perfectly kept the commands of God, in his death, where he took all of our commandment breaking upon himself, in that moment of his life and death and resurrection, Jesus absolutely transforms the name of Jesus. Where no longer do we just call God Yahweh. We get to call God Father. See, the third commandment would actually go like this for, for Christians. It's not just don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's don't take the Lord your God who has been so merciful to send his son Jesus to live for you, die for you, resurrect from the dead on the third day, and has now become a father to you. Don't take that God's name in vain. That's how Jesus transforms the third commandment. Is he gives us not just a big, powerful God out there, but he gives us a big, powerful God right here in our face that says, I'm your father. Now treat me accordingly. And treat me with the sort of reverence that a father who has saved you and rescued and redeemed you should be treated. Now let's take a moment to pray this. I want you to go ahead and bow your heads. Take a moment to, to pray this into our lives, to ask God to clarify this for us. You know, one of the ways that Jesus transforms the third commandment is in the New Testament, he takes on the name of God. In John 8, uh, the Pharisees are, are prying into what Jesus, what is your name? And when push comes to sub, Jesus clarifies and he says, Here, here's my name. Before Abraham was, I am. That's my name. That the Bible is clear that Jesus is God. And, and really it gives us two options on, on not taking the Lord's name in vain or in hallowing God's name, honoring God's name, bowing in God's name gives us one or two options. Either we can do that now and be saved by Jesus, or Philippians 2 shows us we can wait for judgment day, bow to God then as we're condemned and judged by Jesus. And the question is, what person in their right mind wouldn't take bowing now and allowing Jesus to save us? What person who is thinking clearly wouldn't say, Man, I don't want to wait for judgment. I want to do that now. I want to be saved by Jesus who has taken on himself all of my commandment breaking, has died for it so that I could be brought in right relationship with God. And Jesus is saying right, right now, today, I, I'll, I'll do that for you. I'll take my sin uh, or your sin upon, upon myself. I'll give you my perfect record of righteousness and I will usher you into a right relationship with God. The Bible says we do that by putting our faith in Jesus. That means we, we turn from our sin. This is repentance. We turn from our sin. And we hurl our life in faith upon Jesus. And the Bible says when we do that, when we come to God with these sort of empty hands, knowing that the only thing we contribute is the sin that makes our salvation necessary, when we come to God like that, the Bible promises that God stands ready and willing to save us. And I just can't help but imagine that some of us need that this morning. 
You can cry out to God right there where you are, and you can know that the God of the Scripture says, right now, I'll save you. I will call you my own. I will bring you into my family. And if that's you this morning, if your heart's saying yes to God there, make sure you grab one of those cards under your seat, fill that out, and check that box on on establishing a relationship with Jesus. We would love to celebrate that with you, walk beside you in that. We would love to have the opportunity to do that. So let us know that. And for the rest of us, the third commandment is urging us with our lips and our lives to hallow the name of God, to esteem the name of God, honor the name of God. Is there any part of your life right now where you are barricaded? You put walls up. Has God become trivial, light, and significant? The only way we'll ever live in this commandment is for our eyes to be lifted up to the beauty of who Jesus is and to have our hearts changed and transformed by that so that this big, weighty, beautiful Jesus now begins to roll off of our tongue in big, weighty, wonderful ways. So God, will you help us in this? God, God, we just say our desire is we want your name to be hallowed. We want that. God, we pray for that, and we want to pursue that. We want to be a church family who pursues that. So God, will you help us? God, will you wipe the scales from our eyes this morning? Will you help us see you like Moses saw you in a way that laid him low and elicited worship from his heart? God, would you do that? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.